Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who had lived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done to Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Eris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gath. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord for the work that he had done to Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods, gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them to harm, as the Lord, Lord had warned. And as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges to save them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they fought after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because these people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers, and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So, so the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Belhomon as far as Lebanon. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, 
Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for having that Bob read. And so if you have your Bibles there, would you like you to keep it in Judges chapter 2 and 3? We'll be speaking through the Bible a fair bit and looking at that passage in particular. Uh, for, for the having said hello to you before, I, I don't know yet. My name is Sam. I'm one of the regular members of this church. And uh, we've just read a book of Judges. And it's a great, fantastic book. Now, I finished my hectic year about 32, 32 years ago, I think. I'm not very good at maths. And uh, ever since my hectic year, though, I've had a recurring nightmare. I think it comes about this time of the year. Uh, it goes like this. Um, I'm actually sitting in a large room. There are lots of desks filled with people. And um, it's there, you know, just before the five minutes meeting time. And, and I click over the exam booklet. I'm looking through the questions. And I'm going, no, I should have studied. It's because exactly I'm thinking at that moment, I have not prepared myself poorly and I deserve this part. It's a dreadful feeling. I, I wake up from that nightmare, completely defeated actually, uh, and someone believed that it was just a dream. Now, what we're going to see in this talk from Israel's history in the book of Judges is that they're living that night. But it's not just a nightmare, it is real. It is their history. Last week we saw the first sign of Israel's decline, the sort of hints of that, before the plane crashed, so to speak. And we saw that being described from a historical point of view characters, names, places, events happening chronologically. What we're seeing in chapter 2, verse 6, to chapter 3, verse 6, we are seeing it from God's perspective. So, it is going, we are going to have a theological reason being given to us as to the events that unfolded in Israel's time in Judges. But that is why it begins in chapter 2, verse 6, all over again with, with Joshua. Remember chapter 1, verse 1, it began with Joshua as well. So we are repeated in that same thing. We're taking to that place again, to like we're rewinding to see from God's perspective from now on. And so it begins like this. When Joshua dismissed the people in verse 6, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who lived out with Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, a servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years and had buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timna, Paris, in the hill country of Ephraim north of the mountains of Gaza, and all the generations also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord for the word that he had done for Israel. Now, the first few verses there, it's all positive. Josh, Joshua had led the nation of Israel to take inheritance of the land. He settled in the part of that land that God had given them, and he's prospering there. I mean, the length of days mentioned, 110, is meant to be just a small snicker, a glimpse into living in this blessed life in this promised land under God. And him and all of his generations now gathered, the 
cast off. And a new generation comes up. And in verse 10, there is that awful description about that generation that comes up that has forgotten about God and all the work that God had done for Israel. Joshua knew God. Joshua's generation knew God. And this new generation that comes up does not know God nor the work of the Lord. It almost makes you feel like, well, was there a failure of education? Did they have? They didn't have a department of education. Maybe they didn't have schools being set up. Maybe they were too busy building their homes and tilling their land and breeding the cattle and sheep. And they forgot to educate their kids. It seems like that in verse 10 because they did not know the Lord. But I think it's a bit more than that. It's more than just a failure of educating their children. I think what's going on over here is that there is a willful disregard for God. And we'll see that later on when they abandon God. They have no regard for God, nor do they want to have any relationship with this God of their fathers. Uh, it's a bit like one of my students would tell me, uh, and they come into my Christian studies class, always begin by saying, not to offend you, sir. They begin to offend me after that. Or they say, they say this, I don't think your subject is very important. So can I do study my other subjects like maths or history or anything else? I'll tell them no, of course. And this is this is despite him knowing, I know, coming from a Christian family. It's, uh, it's heartbreaking when I hear that. And, and for that to be the case, you might think, is it, is it because a person has failed to teach this child about God? Was it the education system, the school that has failed him? Or is there more going on? What's going on over here, I suppose, in one sense, is a failure of the parents because education and teaching the children to grow up in the mind of God had to do with the parents, the moms and dads, the community, helping the child to do that. Uh, that's hinted as much and struggled as much in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Come, come with me there. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 4. I'll read from there. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk on them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. There is that part about the children. There's a little bit more about that in, in verses 20 to 25 as well in that same chapter about instructing the children. It seems like in the judge's period something wrong happens. Now, without uh, spending too much time on this, maybe I have. I'm biased towards education, obviously. I work in a school as a teacher, and I think this is something that's going on here. Uh, but I don't think that's what the chapter is about, the failure to educate the children as much. But what it is doing very clearly is that there's a hint of losing Christianity in a church like ours within one generation. As I was doing in years, there was a phrase that was often thrown out there. Uh, it said, you know, the first generation fights for the gospel. The second generation assumes the gospel. The third generation forgets the gospel. And the fourth generation opposes the gospel. 
each generation taking about 20 years. And so within 80 years, we get one from deleting the gospel, saying that it is a piece things in slice bread, even better than that, to say it is rubbish. And what we see here in Judges is that within one generation, they go from worshipping the Lord to abandoning Him. We do need to be careful about this as well. I think we should be doing everything humanly possible to ensure that our children do grow up in the world. I know that's not the point of this passage, but it's there for us to listen to that. And for our church to be prayerfully thinking about and prayerfully supporting our children's ministers, and for our high school kids uh, and for Hank as he looks after the U.S. students. We ought to be praying for them and as a community support them in every way possible. Everything humanly possible in pray that God will make them grow and find God. But this is caused by this new generation having a distraction of seeing what the world is like in a better way than what God would give them. It's not like they abandoned God and therefore followed no religion like in the senses that we have. It's they abandoned God and they followed other gods. And we see a downward spiral in that rejection, willful rejection of God. In chapter 2, verses 11 to 19. As a generation that didn't know God, and it's expanded here in verse 11 onwards. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, they found that the Lord was against them for power, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. You notice there in verse 12 and verse 13 that word abandoned appears. When you think about abandoning, Do we treat God like that? That's exactly how they treated God. As something to be thrown out because they could not see much value in worshipping and following in this God. And instead, they followed this Baal, this asteroid, these other gods. What we see here is the first part of the spiral going on. Firstly, there is forget God, and then they commit sin of worshiping other gods, and God will send them other nations to oppress Israel. The Israelites will be burdened and harassed and oppressed, and because of that, they will want to turn towards God. At least that's what they should be doing. And God, in His mercy, sends them a believer, a savior, in verse 16. 
chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord raised up the judges who saved them out of the hand of those who come to During the lifetime of the judges, there was a period of peace, and then they forget God, and the cycle begins all over again. But it gets worse in cycle. It's important to understand this pattern in the book of Judges here in chapter 2 because it is a template for what follows for the rest of the book for every other judge as well. For all the series. So keep that in your minds as we keep on going. Now they abandon God and they worship these bars and they ask for these other gods. And um, it's easy for us to be here among those who worship any of the gods. I mean, the gods of today that we have. Other religions, like Allah, for example, follow Islam. For many of the many other Hindu gods out there. We we wouldn't be crass and do that. But we must follow other gods. And last week I mentioned about the god of money. I mean, these other false gods out there, they're good, actually. Money is good. Wealth is good. You can't live without that. That's true enough. But it isn't the ultimate fulfilling goal. And when we substitute what is not the ultimate with God, we go into worshiping these other false gods that are quite tempting. So last week was about money and wealth. We also said that there might be a God like that. Maybe in the way that we pursue the cost of the family. And we say family as the ultimate good. Maybe for the single amongst us, singles amongst us, might say, well, they provide company, companionship, support, and kids would be nice, and love would be nice, someone washing my feet would be nice, cooking for me would be nice. Then you realize that they cost for the other person you know, it's all about being self centered, isn't it? A single amongst us, I think if you ask the reality of life, family life is like, it's less than ideal when you ask the married couples here. And for the, for the married and the family is here, you might say, yep, we're married, we're living, we are living that life, and we want to put our children's priorities first. It's fair to say that if it is in a small way, we want the best for our children, then why shouldn't we? The best that money can afford. The best cots, the best scholars, the best computers. I mean, we research this stuff, don't we? So I've done that. I've got three kids. They then, as they grow up, go, what is the best private tuition to be sent to so that they can go to the best selected schools if they can get into that? And hopefully they will be like, that's not that safe. They will send them to the best private school for them. People are working. They all think that. Because on top of this background of being largely professional and outwardly mobile, we know what it takes to get up there and we want that for our kids as well. We think that's the best. And we tend to forget that if we see that as being the best, the ultimate, and forget that it is a gift from God, then we are slowly changing our hearts towards this idolatry that's been mentioned here. It is something to watch out for, but Israelites did not. And they were doomed because they had to face the anger of God 
in verses 14 and 15. See there? The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible disgrace. God was patient with them. He warned them. He waited for them to repent and to change. Because God cares about their sin and God cares about them as a nation. God cares about the covenant that He made with them. I will be your God and you will be my people. And this is, why, this is the way I want you to live. And He instructs them. He gives them great times to be God. They give them life. But they turn their backs against all that. And it is a fearful thing to fall into God's hands. And Israel has fallen into God's hands so that God is not only for them, but against them. He judges them. And they are in disgrace. They're in dire straits. I think the warning for us is clear as well. It is only the fool that ignores the warning of God and continues to live in a habitual way of breaking of sin, pushing the boundaries of God's patience. Now, at times you might think that sin is attractive, that it does offer us a good that we want, but most sin is worth it to go for. The letter Paul writes, encourages us to put sin to death in our lives, to kill it, and to work for our salvation with fear and trembling, to work hard at making our election sure. Those things require different powers. We have to take sin seriously. But in all of this, there is this glimpse, and I think it's an important glimpse that will come back to later. But in verses 16 to 18, out of their distress, God doesn't abandon them, but He saves them. He reacts by sending a Savior. See there in verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up the judges to them, the Lord was with the judge, and He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. The Lord was moved by pity of them grinding because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways at the end. You notice that there is this salvation of God. God does care for them. And despite Israel breaking their heart, they're in the garden of their covenant, God does not. He calls them, he rescues them, he sees the trouble that they are in. But we see that he's spiraling downwards in this regression to the bottom. So, how does God react to this worsening situation? Well, he won't let such rebellion continue forever, and God does act as they get worse. We pick that up from verses 20 to 23. And uh, it will come up to point three in the afternoon, by the way. Chapter 2, verse 20. 
says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because these people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers, and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of their nations that Joshua left them many times. He wanted to test Israel on that, whether they would take care to walk in the way of the Lord as the fathers did or not. So the Lord left, Joshua, uh, left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and they did not give them into the hand of Joshua. This is almost a repeat of what we said in chapter 2, verse 14. Of the God of the Lord is kindled against Israel. But we have a new element coming into this. It's not just anger, though, it is to test these people. And it is these people, notice there in verse 20, not my people. Let me read from chapter 2, verse 20. The anger of the Lord is kindled against Israel, and he said, Because these people have transgressed. Did you notice that? All up to this, up to this point, it's been my people, my people. Now it's these people because they have continued to reject God. The other element that we get from these people, by the way, is the testing of this nation. And when it comes to testing, it is you think about it. What is this testing going to be like? It's going to be an exam like something we have to see, or maybe perhaps at the end of the term here at university. Uh, but it is to test whether Israel is going to obey God or not, whether they will turn back as if they've learned their lesson. But what we do see is that they keep failing in this test. You would think that after God shows them the grace of God by sending them a judge, that Israel would have learned their lesson by now. Would have learned how to deal with the nations around them. Follow God. How gracious you are, God, in sending us this Savior, this Judge, this teaching us about how to follow you, and also rescuing us from our oppressors. This grace of God that we've tasted and experienced. But they don't. They continue to reject God. And now God says, I'm going to raise them up. These other nations in order to test Israel whether they will follow God. Now, the word testing them might be this negative, but it isn't in the sense of God continues to wait patiently for them to pass the exam, so to speak. It is the continual grace of God. That's the reason why God gives these nations in order to teach them warfare, because in their warfare, they're going to learn obedience to God. And the failure is spelled out with a little bit more detail in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel, they have not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might learn war, to teach war to those that had not known it before. These are the nations. The five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hebrews who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal-Hemon, Hermon, as far as Leah-Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hebrews, and the Jebusites. 
and daughters that took to themselves the wives and their own daughters that gave to their sons and they served their gods. The outcome of all this was that there was only partial obedience to God. God handed them over to the nations around them to be tested and for them to continue to fail because they failed to insulate their hearts against the standards of the world around them. I wonder what we might need to insulate our hearts against as well. The world is kind of pressuring us. Because I work in a school, I work in a school, and there are lots of non-Christian kids and families that are actually encountering the past and they're not set outside. And one of the questions that I saw as a Christian there is, we want to, well, I definitely feel the pressure of wanting to make Christianity respectable, engaging, relevant. I hope you do too as well in your own workplace. But the tension that I feel is that whenever I try to do that, I minimize the other sides of God, like the anger and the judgment of God. I minimize talking about sin, the fact that we are all rebelling against God in our hearts. I feel the pressure not to talk about that at all, because that's negative, that scares children. When it does scare children, often hear about places like crusaders camps, kids go on those kind of camps that are Christian leaders and they talk about faith and you talk to kids in the Bible and they do talk about the judgment of God and mercy and the love of God at the same time. What the non-Christian kids come up with is, you know, they talk about hell and they go and tell the parents, you fear that God is going to judge them and then the parents leave the school and they're really mean and say, you don't really say that, that my child who does not believe in Jesus will go to hell, it freaks them out. So the difficulty for me, I think it might be for you as well, if you work in a non-Christian workplace, you want to combat that side of the world by not talking everything about the whole counsel of God, talking about the nice bits of Christianity. We don't want to be seen as haters. We want to be seen as loving and tolerant. By doing so, are we losing the whole shape of the gospel? Are we compromising the whole message of God? I think it's a tough balance to follow. I certainly struggle with it. And if you're struggling with it, good. It means that you want to do the right thing. And you're thinking hard about how to do that well. I hope you can find a solution. And let me just suggest to you, because I in an association with other Christian teachers and chaplains, we talk about this. It's not an easy task. So if you're a doctor or, I don't know, whatever work you do here, private body, well, any, like it could be an accountant, it could be anything else, it could be a plumber. If you're thinking about this, make sure that you think hard and you talk to other people with boundaries so that you can do this well. And in your own workplace, present the whole counsel of God in a meaningful and engaging way that is faithful, faithful to the world's God. But let me conclude uh, by passing this exam because I think the message so far has been rather dark and dire and failing, like my nightmare. 
there is there is a glimpse of hope, but I really want to want to land on that. See, the failure of my time again, time and time again, and it, it is worse in each generation of judges. And uh, they deserve everything that they get for the judges. And if you think about it, uh, we deserve everything that we get for failing God as well. But we see Yahweh's, the Lord's compassion being expressed there in verses 16 to 18. And I think it's a key verse. See, God raised up the judges who saved them, remember? And in verse 18, He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. Because those who afflicted and oppressed them. God being moved by His generosity and love and pity because He did not want to see Israel suffer. That's His compassion. And you notice here as well, did you notice that Israel does not cry out for help in that passage? God just sees their oppression and saves them. It's, it's, you know, we like to think that we cried out to God and God responds to us, but we don't see that here. It's just Israel suffering and God moved by what he sees. Not they cry for help, but moved by what he sees and he saves them. I wonder if you became a Christian because you know you, you hit the bottom and you cried out to God for help and God responded kindly and mercifully to you. That might be the case. But I think the clearer picture there is presented than we that we've had in one of us chapter five. We were friends with God when God turned his face towards you. Romans chapter five, let me end in the bed. While we were still weak, in verse 6, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, but perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies in our minds against God, Christ died for us. We should never underestimate God's saving act of sinners like you and me. We were friends with God saying, Yes, I love you. We were enemies against God. We were suffering, and we not even known that. And just as God raised the judges to rescue his people, God sent his son for us, undeserving sinners like you and me. For the greatest sinner who recognizes how much we've fallen before God, isn't it fantastic to see that God's grace is being right in our failures and our sins? We're going to be singing the song, uh, Amazing Grace, talking about all this, reflecting that quite well. But you know, the, the author of that hymn was John Newton. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, was once a slave trader, as I think many of you know. And he was a reprehensible example of a human being. I mean, you just imagine trading in people's lives, their souls, and selling them for profit from one continent to another, stockpiling them in a ship, so crowding them because he knew that one third of them would die in that voyage across the Atlantic. Just so that he could make a buck. 
because that's the God he served. And yet, while he was in that state, God shines his mercy in the world. While he was an enemy in his mind and in his actions against God, God showed him his grace and mercy. And all this is possible because of the undeniable fact is that that though I'm a great sinner, in Christ we have a great Savior, even greater than our sins. And we can thank God for that. 